0: Gen Off Grid provides stations with reliable energy systems comprising of solar, lithium batteries and backup diesel, reducing current diesel usage by up to 90%. All systems are built and tested at our workshops in Broome, Carrethra and Darwin, with proven performance in North Australian conditions, backed by a 10-year warranty, local support and remote monitoring. Visit their website to see systems in action on cattle stations as well as commercial, ecotourism and industrial projects. Learn more at genoffgrid.com. That's G-E-N-O-F-F-G-R-I-D.com. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today.
1: Travelling vast distances to access services is second nature for Rainy Holcomb. It's part and parcel with living in the Northern Territory. Raised on a crocodile farm in the Victoria River district, Rainy developed a love for life on the land, which eventually saw her running a contracting business that took her and her husband to cattle stations across the territory. They spent years living out of a portable setup with no fixed address, and trips to town were not only few and far between, but often at least half a day's drive away. So when Rainy and her husband Potter found themselves struggling to conceive their first child, the idea of travelling to Darwin for medical assistance wasn't ideal, but also not incomprehensible. Little did the pair know that they would end up travelling across Australia in search of answers about their infertility. In this episode, Rainey speaks candidly about her experience with infertility and how it took years of persistence, tens of thousands of kilometres and dollars, and backing herself each step of the way to finally get the answers she needed. Now, we actually recorded this episode sitting in the back of Rainy's horse truck while she was at a camp draft. It was a balmy, like, 35-degree afternoon, so it was a very comfortable recording studio for us, and you will be hearing some very authentic background noises from time to time during this recording to start our chat, I asked Rainy to tell me about her childhood, which was light years away from my own.
2: Uh, well, I guess I was an only child, but I don't feel I was a typical only child. Most of my childhood um, was spent out on my family's property, which was a crocodile farm. So it was a bit different, I suppose. And um, I remember as my mum taught me school of the air through all of my primary schooling and when we'd go to school camp or in school or mini school I just wanted to be the kid off the cattle station like the rest of them but I wasn't I was the one with the crocodiles (laughs) but no it was a great upbringing like we live a couple of hours from Catherine and We'd go fishing in the afternoons on the river or I had horses, so I'd go riding on my own, you know, down to the river and and things. So I loved where I grew up. It was a very beautiful place and, um,
1: yeah, I think I was pretty fortunate to be able to grow up in that environment. Did you long for siblings growing up or did you like being an only child?
2: Uh, No, I did. I I did long for a brother or sister, I think, just, yeah, for company. But I don't – I guess I didn't know any different and – my best friends were our workers that worked for mum and dad you know they were always really cool and hung out with me and entertained me and and
1: so they they ended up being like my best friends and stuff so yeah I guess it worked out well. And so while your classmates who were on school of the air with you were growing up on cattle stations you know probably having the same you know pet dogs as you perhaps but they were raising you know orphan calves you were raising baby crocodiles.
2: Yeah, that's right. Sometimes I'd turn up to class with like a bag of croc teeth and I was the coolest kid in the class. <laughs> so that was good, like divvy
1: them up and give my friends these teeth as souvenirs and I thought that was pretty cool. So what <laughs> kind of stuff did you do with the crocodiles? Because I remember a few years ago, I, don't, I think I you were in town, like I, this might have been almost a decade ago, who knows, and I just remember you were driving through town and there was like a crocodile on the back of your ute or i would sure you had a trailer with a crocodile tied down, just something so <laughs> random and I was like, you would not catch me even in – the passenger seat of that car with that crocodile on the back but like you've handled them a bit and
2: so yeah i guess when i was younger um i used to help like feed the little ones and clean the croc pens out it's a very repetitive job and it's quite intensive farming sort of practice i suppose so you know the little crocodiles have to be fed every day and their pens have to be washed out every day you got to keep a high level of hygiene to keep them healthy and and get the best growth rate results sort of thing so when i was smaller i guess I-, I sort of joined in with a little bit of that and um As I got older, I got to, I guess, participate in in some of the bigger activities like collecting the crocodile eggs. So I think I started collecting eggs when I was 16. I got got given a pistol for my 16th birthday so that I could go collect crocodile eggs with dad. So um, yeah, that meant in the wet season, I'd go out in the helicopters and I was sort of dad's apprentice, I guess. But also, yeah, we were a good team. Well, he told me we were a good team. He said he trusted me lots and and I worked my way up from there. So originally, I guess I'd go out, um, on the, like on the egg collections and I would pack the eggs and stay sort of at a bit of a base. And then as I got more experience, then I ended up going out and collecting the nests on my own and getting put on the sling under the helicopter and, and all of that. So yeah, that, that all started when I was about 16 and I really enjoyed it because it really got the adrenaline going, I guess. And you come home with some awesome stories about lots of close calls through the day, but you know, which mum never wanted to hear about. She goes, oh, just don't tell me. But, uh, you know, dad was always close by, you know, if, even if he was in another helicopter collecting a different nest. And, yeah, I guess we we kind of worked well as a team. We sort of had a bit of a routine and, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think it's
1: an experience that, you know, hardly anyone else gets to do. So I'll, I'll always remember that. I'm just thinking for my 16th birthday I got a pair of um, pink cubic zirconia earrings and I had a birthday party where boys were allowed to come and it was costume and I dressed up as Minnie Mouse (laughs) had like the from the costume shop her dress and her ears on you know Really, like a twelve-year-old at heart. You got a pistol for your sixteenth birthday. Like, yeah. what different lives we led.
2: Yeah, I think that's just Dad's train of thought. But yeah, he's like, "Well, you're old enough now to have a, a firearm." I was studying my plane license at the time too, so I guess if you're old enough to get your plane license, you're old enough to have a pistol. So, oh my god,
1: <laughs> that's how. It I don't think anybody would have trusted me. Like, even I think the only license I had by then was my pen license, <laughs> and even then, like that might have been a struggle <laughs> with. You know, raising crocodiles or having a croc farm. Do you, so say any other kind of agriculture or animal agriculture, whether you're raising sheep, cattle, pigs, there is the occasional orphan animal or animal that needs to be kind of mothered and looked after and, and reared by hand. Does it happen like that with crocodiles? Because it's not like, do the baby crocs all kind of grow up with their mum? It's not really like that, is it?
2: Um, no, it's, it's sort of like a feedlot operation, I suppose. So, um, you know, you'd have, we normally when we hatch out a nest that nest stays together and in, in a pen and then you know they grow, but then as they grow, then you might get sicker ones or ones that grow slower or whatever. so we used to just sort of have like a like a hospital pen like a feedlot does does I suppose so you know we'd just draft out any little sick ones or ones that weren't growing and they all sort of just got a little bit of extra treatment or um you know maybe different vitamins put into their food and such but um yeah they're definitely not just put up in a in a pen closer to the house and cuddled and fed bottles of milk or anything, but they did get a little extra bit of TLC, yeah.
1: But it wasn't like, yeah, like you're saying, it's not like you'd kind of – they're not the animal you'd pick up and kind of give a pat to and a cuddle or – No, you don't try and sneak them up to your bedroom or anything, yeah. no. <laughs> okay, just checking. I was like, maybe I don't know about this. Maybe that's something he would do. Oh, gosh. So what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up then, if by the age of 16 you were already kind of well and truly exposed to the crock egg – uh, industry or the crocodile farming industry, and you also were, I'm guessing, getting a plane license, like.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't want to do crocodile farming, much to my dad's disgust. I think mum and dad were a bit disappointed. I didn't want to take over the family farm. Uh, like I love the location, but I just didn't like the whole business idea aspect. And I think that's only purely because I had seen how hard they had to work and, you know, I guess hard work for little gain sort of thing. And, and, um, Yeah I I guess when I went away to boarding school I didn't really know um, what I wanted to do but I really enjoyed actually hospitality and I thrived in that at school that that was one of the subjects that I did well in but as an extracurricular activity while I was at boarding school I was given the opportunity to study my plane license so from grade 10 onwards after school I, I studied for that so I guess that gave me a bit of direction so the plan was yeah, I would leave school with my plane licence, get my hours up and then um, get my helicopter licence and whether that was then going to be used in mustering or survey or tourism or crocodile egg collecting. You know, I didn't really have a plan. I just wanted, I guess, to get the licence and then work out what avenue I wanted to go down from there. So I did complete the, the plane licence but I think once I left school, I kind of realised that I actually... Um, as I started working on stations, I guess, to get experience if, you know, if I did want to become a mustering pilot and I realized I kind of enjoyed working on the ground more than I did in the
1: sky. So I never ended up, um, going ahead with a chopper license. You've spent, I guess it would be about 15 years now working out on stations to the point where you run a very successful contracting business with your husband, what was it that kind of kept you there once you got there? What was it about being on the ground that? Because I think for a lot of people, the allure of being the pilot in the sky is—is is that it is very alluring, Um and a lot of people do kind of have that as a goal. But something kind of hooked you and kept you.
2: Yeah, on the I, <clears throat> tricky one. One is probably horses, as I love. I guess I loved being able to do the horse work with the cattle, and and that's and that's probably one of the main reasons again that i did start in the in the cattle industry was to get some horse experience you know on a station as well and so that was definitely one of the pulls but i love i guess the uh, you having to think like you know when you're working cattle on the ground you have to constantly think about your positioning and the amount of pressure you're putting on things and there's a lot of thought involved i suppose in what you're doing it's not just you know um you know, put pressure on them here and bulge them there and whatever. If you want to do a good job, there's always room for improvement and always thinking of how can you do the job better. And, and yeah, I guess I kind of liked that challenge. I love the physical challenge too. Like I I thrive on the physical work. I, I don't do well sitting in an office or a room and probably – perhaps not just sitting in the bubble of a helicopter, like I, I have to be a, a physical person. So that was probably another reason.
1: You didn't want to get a heli belly? No. To <laughs> any pilot out there listening? I'm sorry. I just had to drop that one in. <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to get some hate mail now. <laughs> yeah. I guess it is. It's a very um, working with cattle or anything really out here is very – There's a lot of nuances. Like you can just make one very minor adjustment in your behaviour or what you've done and that can have a big impact on the animals. It's not like – it's. I guess there's lots of shades of grey. So you're always constantly having to like measure and like recalculate and kind of adjust what you're doing.
2: And all cattle are different and, you know, it doesn't matter where you go. Each station does it differently. Each cattle react differently. They've, you know, um been handled differently. So if you think you know how to work cattle, then you – you don't because then you go to the next place and it's going to be totally different and I guess that's um, why I love contracting so much.
1: So it was while you were contracting that you met your now husband, Potter, He has a real name but it's just call him Potter. <laughs> yeah. um, can we please have the love story?
2: Yeah, I guess um, I first met Potter um, at a camp draft as probably a lot of people out here do and, and we just became friends to start with. We were friends for quite a few years first and, um, yeah, just caught up now and then as friends. And then, um, one day, um, I told him, I said, Oh, I'm going home to visit my parents for the weekend. And he's like, Oh, well, I'm close by. Well, do you mind if I come and visit you? And, and I was like, Oh, yeah, no worries. And, um, so yeah, this guy turned up and I was friends with the guvy next door. And I said, This guy's coming to visit. And I don't really know, like, how am I supposed to entertain him? I know, we'll take him fishing because all blokes like fishing. Except at that point, Potter didn't like fishing. I didn't know that. And I thought, well, what a weirdo. Like, What kind of guy doesn't (laughs) enjoy fishing on the Victoria River? But so, yeah, he sort of just turned up for the weekend and and then followed me back to the station at the end of the weekend and stayed for a few days. And, yeah, I guess our friendship sort of blossomed from there. And, yeah, we sort of got together.
1: Did you think that perhaps he just wanted to come out to home just to see, like, a croc farm and see something different? Or did you think he was coming a put the hard word on you? Uh,
2: no, I think I knew because we'd, you know, we'd been just chatting. He, he'd call me occasionally or we were, you know, talking online or, or and things. So, um, yeah, I thought there was a bit
1: more to it. <laughs> As I mentioned just before, you and Potter run a business together now. How early on into dating did you guys start working together?
2: Um, I think we'd been together about six months and – we'd had actually some pretty serious conversations about this prior um i remember when we first got together he said let's just get one thing straight you'll never work for me because at the time i was working at kidman springs and he'd just started his contract mastering business and um i remember saying well if we're never working together then this isn't going to work i said because you know heaps of people on stations and properties work together that's just how the business runs Anyway, I guess we stayed together for a bit and I remember him calling me. He must have had a bad day where he was out mustering with his crew and he was like, you oh, I really need you here to help. And I was like, oh, uh, you know, I thought that would never work together. But um, so, yeah, I think about after the first of six months and um, I was sort of ready to move on from the station I was at and so I, I had – Begun studying a diploma in equine tactile therapy at the time. And I said, well, look, I'll come along and I'll be your cook. And, um, as long as, you know, I can study sort of at the same time. But, well, we should all know that that doesn't happen because once you're out in the camp, then you you become everything. So yeah, so that was 2013. I I went out to the camp, um, to just be the cook. And
1: yeah, I've been contracting now with Potter ever since. (laughs) I guess it's kind of in line with the environment out here of, of a, of all the extremes like you – and it goes in the relationship as well. You can either work separately um, but then you probably never see each other because you're both out remote and when do you get those opportunities or the only other alternative is to kind of work together but then it's the whole other end of the spectrum that you're kind of with each other twenty four seven. Yes. There's no middle ground.
2: (laughs) That's correct. And it is – it's hard. It's very hard work I think because, you know, if – you're with the boss and they don't want to be seen either to be giving it to you easy so you cop a lot of it if they're having a bad day and they don't want to take it out on the staff to you then you cop it and I I realized that and I think I was prepared for that at the time as well but yeah it it's very testing and and you have some very bad days but I think yeah if you can get through working together then yeah for sure you'll be right for life. <laughs>
1: Well, I was going to say like that, yeah, that's a very like pressure cooker situation. And as you said, it can be really testing on the relationship, but I suppose little did you know that that wasn't going to be like the only environment or the only challenge you guys would come up against that would really put pressure on you guys. So, let's talk about um, starting a family.
2: Yeah. So, um, we got married in 2016 and thought we would start trying for a family straight away. And yeah i guess it took longer than we were planning we we sort of tried naturally for 12 months and nothing was happening and so we just saw our local gp and Catherine, and said you know um what do you recommend and yeah i guess from there on we realized that it wasn't going to be that easy for us and we needed to look into um fertility treatment
1: what did you know about fertility and conception before you started trying? Like was it just kind of what you remember from being taught in high school or? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's
2: yeah, pretty blind. Like I don't think we knew anything. Like you don't even I didn't even realise I guess, you know, how to track ovulation and and that was even involved because, you know, you're always on the pill and, and trying to avoid getting pregnant or whatever and Little do we know that there's such a small window to fall pregnant into anyway. So, yeah, I guess it was a huge learning curve and we were totally blind going into it. We didn't know very many people that had done it. I guess we also thought, we thought that if, if we were going to do fertility treatment, we were just guaranteed a baby. Like, yep, no worries. We'll go, um, we'll do IVF and in a couple of months we'll be pregnant. And, and that's definitely not the case. And I think that was a real slap in the face. You just think, oh yeah, we have to do the, you know, IVF and, and pay more money than the average person to be able to kind of, I guess, like AI. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't that easy and so that was a huge learning curve because, you know, um, there's so many different causes of infertility and and to find your cause before you can treat it is the process.
1: So what happened at that first appointment with the GP and Catherine? Like what was – what were they talking to you about and what did they want to investigate?
2: So, yeah, they just did some basic tests, some basic blood tests, um, you know, and they tell you all the obvious things like cut back on smoking, are you active people, um, you're not overweight, um, and all of that, uh, you know, maybe take some multivitamins, check your egg levels, check your sperm count, do physical checks, maybe we'll check if your tubes are blocked and, and just I guess your, your basic level testing for fertility once I guess all our results came back reasonably good, then they referred us then to a IVF
1: specialist in Darwin. So they, I guess, so is that just, is that, uh, I guess standard protocol for everyone? Like if you have some tests, um, and say you've, you know, they say, you know, try for 12 months or whatnot, and then after that it's straight to a specialist and to IVF?
2: Yes. So I think your first step is that you, you speak with a, yeah, an IVF specialist, and then they, um, they'll run more basic, what they, I suppose, classify as, as basic testing.
1: Okay, so you are referred to a specialist. What happens then?
2: Yeah, so uh, we were referred to Reprimed in Darwin and assigned to a fertility specialist there. Um, they ran more tests, more blood tests, um, but also said, you know, well, I guess because you're here, we we're going to do an egg retrieval and embryo transfers, you know, as well. So so we had more testing done and, again, everything just came, kept coming back normal and normal so they couldn't really give us a reason um, for the infertility. And so basically they said, we, you know, we just think that you need a little bit of help. So um, we'll, you know, do an egg collection which is called a, a stimulation cycle so you inject yourself with lots of hormones to promote follicle growth. They remove the eggs from you your partner does a sample, they create embryos, and then you have your embryo transfers. So we went along with that and went through the motions of doing that, which is quite an expensive operation. Like that's the whole sort of um, the costs of the medications you require, plus needing to travel to Darwin and getting accommodation while you're up there. Um, I stayed in Darwin for a couple of weeks that it took just so that I was close to Services being able to get blood tests and scans to track my cycle. So, yeah, we went ahead with that and we were able to get six embryos. Then we began like the transferring process. So, we had an embryo transferred and it was unsuccessful. So, we tried again and again. So, we did three embryo transfers. Um, meanwhile, they had sort of given up on any further testing, saying, you know, there's nothing else that we can test for um and they were basically just telling us it was a numbers game we just needed to keep putting them in until one stuck but after three embryos we weren't really convinced that that was the answer there had to be something more there had to be a reason that it still wasn't working so yeah we really wanted to get a second opinion because to us we were just wasting money
1: may I ask when you first booked that appointment for the GP was it that you weren't conceiving at all, or was it, um, conceiving and then, and then early on kind of like having a miscarriage, like no. not being able to keep it once it?
2: Yeah, no. So for us, we just weren't conceiving at all.
1: Yeah. And then, so then I guess you think like that's perhaps maybe the problem. So then IVF in theory should kind of cut out that one part of the process yeah. by giving you that embryo. Yeah, that's right. And then, then they just weren't taking.
2: Yeah. So, even even with, yeah, I guess the IVF process, we still weren't falling pregnant, not even for a short time. So, obviously, naturally, it wasn't working. IVF, it wasn't working. So, there was obviously something a little bit more serious happening and um, trying to find out what that was. So, it was, yeah, um, very, that
1: was the long haul. <laughs> what did you know about IVF before you started that process? I know you mentioned earlier that you thought um, having IVF more or less guaranteed your baby, it was, you know, something that should really produce the result. And yeah. then when that wasn't happening, like what I guess, I'm guessing you learn a lot about the process while you're in it.
2: Yeah. I guess you start to worry then because then you wonder if, is, is this ever going to happen? Um, so yeah, we, we didn't really know, like I said, we don't, we didn't really know much about IVF going into it. I suppose, or even where to start or, or what to look for or any of that. It was definitely the blind leading the blind. And I feel like our clinic in Darwin, uh, didn't really help us. They, you know, weren't obviously able to give us much information or, or get us ahead. So yeah, a lot of sort of research speaking to people. I guess I tried to then ask more people questions that I had heard had been through IVF before, did a lot more research about it, I suppose. Um, and, yeah, I guess from that point is when we sort of took it into our own hands a bit more to find out more about it and and how we were going to get a result.
1: The region that you and Potter do most of your contracting in, where is that in relation to Darwin? Like how far away are we talking? Um, well, because we're contractors,
2: I mean, it, it really differs. When we were using the specialists in Darwin, we were working, you know, around Newcastle Waters and right on sort of the boundary of the Barclay and... At, you know, now we're sort of more Kimberley area. So because we travel so much and um, and now we have a base too, you know, when we first started we were just living in the Gooseneck and, and we didn't have a, a base or anything, um, whereas now we live in Timber Creek so we have a bit more of a permanent address. But, yeah, I, re- I remember – when we were at Newcastle Waters, I was traveling into Tennant Creek every second day for blood tests. So, you know, that was a four-hour round trip every second day just to get a blood test. And then I still had to wait, you know, two or three days to get the results of that test. But the delay in those results affected our cycle because I needed to know earlier what they were. So. Catherine would often lose our results very frequently that happens so many times and is often why when I needed my cycle tracked, I'd just stay in Darwin and get the testing done there because um yeah a lot more accurate their turnaround and getting the results and things so yeah I guess anywhere from two to four hours away from Catherine uh, which is you know your closest medical um, facility for blood testing with a well, with a quicker turnaround
1: but it's still a couple of days turnaround there for some of the blood tests I can't even begin to imagine the pressure that this must put on you both as individuals but as a couple you know your newlyweds this should be like a really exciting you know kind of little honeymoon phase um you know but it's kind of like when it rains it pours like it's not just you're having troubles but you're I suppose given the the lifestyle and the industry that you work in, you've got no fixed address, you're so far away from services, it is a, a high-pressure job. Like, you're responsible for a lot of people, um, the safety of people and animals. There's a lot of moving parts. You've got your own team, you've got to work with other people's team. Like, it's a very full-on job. And then you're trying to deal with all of this as well. Like, how did that sort of start to impact you?
2: Yeah, well, so there's lots of uh, challenges, I think, um even physical and then mental, Um, you know, because people say, well, you need to take it easier, don't work so hard because, like I said, I enjoy the physical aspect of it, not being able to have time to get away, to be able to do the treatment. You know, I guess we put the business first a lot of the time and now I look back and think, well, that was just stupid. We should have just bit the bullet and, you know, don't put the business first, just try and sort out your health and, and your fertility, I suppose, if that's what you want to do. And then other challenges, I guess, also... You know, I'd have medications here in the gooseneck, but we turn the generator off for most of the day while we're out working. But, you know, the medications have to stay at a certain temperature and things like that. So, you know, I guess they were some basic challenges. But then on yourself personally as a couple and your mental health is very challenging as well. So I think the girls take on a lot of the blame. They blame themselves a fair bit and, you know initially I think Potter put a lot of pressure on me too and and my body for not being able to fall pregnant and you take that pretty personally and um yeah it's it's hard you know some days it probably doesn't bother you but then there's other days where it's crushing and it's really hard and you know I'd be crying all day because I just couldn't fall pregnant so And I think also, you know, then you've got the financial pressure too, because IVF is so expensive. And, you know, we're trying to run a small business. We're, you know, scraping dollars together. We're financially, it's hard. And it felt like we're wasting all this money on IVF and then my body wasn't producing a result. So yeah, it created a lot of friction and it was hard. It was, it was a very big challenge. And yeah, I guess we threw the, you know, the, blame game around a fair bit as well and it's yeah um yeah definitely difficult
1: but another challenge in life that you overcome together i know you mentioned before we uh, started recording that one of the reasons perhaps potter thought you know maybe the you know may lay with you is that he'd had a lot of testing done and everything was kind of coming up tickety-boo on his side yeah um but then did so is it in the process do they just usually test like the man first and is that kind of the first protocol and was it later on that I guess or although I guess it isn't it's well I guess we'll get to that because it was as we'll find it wasn't you or him it's
2: I think there's just less testing for the males so yeah I mean they we both had the testing done initially and Um, but I think it's just that there's more to go wrong with the female side of it. So, um, yeah, I mean, the men do get tested. It's just, they, you know, I mean, all the results originally were coming back that I was fine as well. So, there was no reason Mm. to blame myself. It's just a mental game, I suppose. But, yeah, typically the female obviously has to undergo
1: a lot more testing because I suppose there's probably more loopholes there for things to go wrong. I guess if the embryo during IVF, if the embryo is – being formed, you must think, well, okay, yes, you know, those two right. bits are working, the sperm and the egg, they're, they're gone together, all right. And then that, I guess, if it's not taking, I guess it's natural to assume there's something with perhaps with your womb that, and that that's where it may lay. Yes, that's absolutely correct. It just must be, yeah, a lot to take on because, um, you know, we're kind of, aside from just whether, or not, you know, wanting children, but it's, you know, out of the relationship, you're the only one that can do it. And we're kind of, you know, we're told from when we're children, like, this is what you do. You grow up, you have kids. Like, there's so much importance sort of placed on it overtly, but also kind of covertly as well, like in yeah, society. Yeah, so, absolutely. and then I, I know this is a weird train of thought, but also the industry you guys work in and even growing up on the croc farm, it all revolves around breeding animals in the circle of life. And, yeah. and I find it very interesting that, um, like a cow's worth is, largely attributed to whether or not she can produce a calf so just thinking about you know the pressure and you being like well i can't produce this baby like
2: yeah it's hard to get staff you want to try and breed your own stock cam, but <laughs> yeah <laughs> and if you can't well when you're contractors that's hard we need more people <laughs>
1: <laughs> so when so you decided to kind of pull up on the ivf for a minute just to you know rather than potentially just kind of throwing money down the drain, you know, not sure. But it sounds like you weren't really getting any answers from your doctors in Darwin. Uh, Also, just coming back to this idea of, you know, the, the fact that you guys were so remote it's not like, oh, I'll book an appointment and go on and, you know, take half a day off work and have my appointment and whatnot. Like you have to drive, say, if you're at Newcastle Waters, what's that seven or eight hours to get to Darwin? Yes.
2: Yeah, so you seven know, hours, that's yeah.
1: a, you know, and taking, even if you just go up on your own, that's taking one very important person out of business because the two of you are incredibly capable, skilled people that, you know, it's like taking one half of, of your leadership team away, yeah. but then also, so, but ideally, I guess you'd want Potter to be there and have some support during this, but then you're going to yeah. lose two people, you know, the two leaders of the business. Like, yeah, it's a really right. hard spot you're finding yourself I in. I really
2: had to, I guess that was another challenge, I guess, going through the process was I had to accept that I would be doing as much of this solo as was possible. You know, if I didn't need Potter there for a test or I didn't need Potter there to provide a sample to create an embryo, then he didn't come. Um, he couldn't afford the time away and so,
1: therefore yeah, it was me going to the appointments all the time um, on my own. Yeah. yeah that's just got to be even harder, you know, going through, you know, you're both experiencing, I mean, every like a similar experience, but also very different. I suppose you know, everyone experiences things differently, but when, you know, you're not both there at like every appointment or every time you're getting a result, like it is still, yeah. Like just, oh, that must've been, I don't yeah. know, it feels really silly to say it must've been so hard, but I don't so, know what else to say.
2: And I think it, it depended on on the appointment at the time, you know, I guess if I was just going for a blood test or a routine check or something, um, then I didn't mind so much. But, you know, if I was there to get a blood re- result to find out that we hadn't fallen pregnant that cycle, then that's sort of something that I wanted him there for. Or if we were having an embryo transfer, and I think he came to one embryo transfer, but yeah, af- after that, he was sort of like, okay, I've seen the process now and I can't really afford any more time away. So, yeah, from then on, um, I'd had all the rest
1: on my own. So, as it turned out, the reason you guys weren't able to conceive was much deeper and more complex than what the IVF clinic was actually able to, I guess, within their scope of their capability, I suppose. I don't know, maybe perhaps just that clinic, not all clinics. What I guess when you decided to, to pull up on the treatment for a minute, like what what do you do next? Like, are you thinking like, where do we, where do we go? What do we do?
2: Yeah. So I, I guess we just thought um, we needed a second opinion. We weren't really happy with um, what options the doctors were giving us from Darwin. And like I said, you know, we took up on the research a bit ourselves. Then I guess we, we kind of made a decision that we were going to have to travel interstate for a second opinion um, because there were no other clinics in, in Darwin. And, if we had to travel interstate, we could go anywhere in Australia because it's nearly four hours from Darwin anywhere to anywhere else in Australia. So, you know, we could have gone to Perth or Sydney or Brisbane or or whatever. So I guess we were leaning a bit more towards Queensland because we've got family down that way and, you know, I, we asked around. I did. I joined support groups over Facebook and did lots of Google research and heard about a doctor on the Gold Coast and I thought, well, if you've got to fly to Brisbane, it's only another hour to the Gold Coast and this guy sounds great. So we booked just a phone consult with him initially. And he said, um, well, we need you to come down. I want to do an investigative surgery on you, which Darwin had told me. Um, he wanted to do surgery to check for endometriosis, which is quite common with women now. And Darwin had told me I didn't have endometriosis because um, I didn't have any symptoms. They said, so it's impossible you can't have it. So they didn't actually want to check for it and so I flew down I had this surgery and it turns out I had endometriosis so that was the first box so we thought well perhaps that's the only problem so I had the surgery to remove that but yeah the embryos we we did another egg collection and it got more embryos and we got our embryos from Darwin transferred to the new doctor on the Gold Coast it still wasn't working so after another I think we might have done another three or four Transfers, but our new doctor, each time we had a failed transfer, he would test for something else. He would look for more answers and he, he had a lot of further testing to do. Whereas Darwin had sort of run out of options that obviously exhausted all their knowledge, but this particular doctor in Queensland, you know, he's up there with a lot of the, the newer practices. And, and so yeah, he, he said, well, we'll get you tested for this condition called DQ alpha gene, which is, both our bodies fault for causing the infertility as it turns out so we didn't have to play the blame game anymore. (laughs) Um so DQU alpha gene is when you um create an embryo um there is a specific gene that is too similar so we would both have the same gene. And I know it sounds like it means we're inbred and that's definitely (laughs) what it sounds like, but that's not the case. So what happens is when we naturally create an embryo, um my body thinks that the embryo is already um, genetically made up too similar to the rest of my body and therefore it's like a cancer attacking my body. So, my body attacks it back. Um, so, that what was happening. Every time we had an embryo Im- implanted, my body would attack it and never gave it a chance to actually implant um, and develop. So, you know, I, at that point I, I wouldn't even experience a miscarriage um, because I wouldn't get that far along. So, we found out that there is a way to treat this um, but it's very – It's a pretty rare condition and it's a bit controversial because a lot of specialists don't actually even believe in it. They don't believe in immune problems. And we're so fortunate in Australia that there are two doctors who offer treatment for this condition. And basically what it does is sort of the treatment helps suppress my immune system so that when we do implant an embryo, you know, it stops my body from attacking it. So, yeah, a lot of learning. I feel like we're part scientists now after having to go through all that and learn about all this. And, you know, that, that took another couple of years to actually get to that result. But we were so impressed with our new doctor, just constantly trying new things and testing for new things and doing the research and giving us more answers than what we were getting from Darwin and making more progress.
1: So, how long was it after your wedding when you first started trying for a family that you learnt about the, that you got the diagnosis of the, the DQ alpha gene?
2: So, yeah, we, we started trying mid year. Um, so, it's 2016, we started trying to, to begin our family. And I think we were, we would have been diagnosed um, 2019.
1: I just got. Goosebumps, sorry So you said that that is a long time. Yeah, it takes a long time. Yeah,
2: and and so much travel. You know, you and I think that's that's what sort of hit me now because um you you're driving to Katherine, you're driving to Darwin, you're flying, and you know that was our choice to choose, like I said, a, a doctor in Queensland. But flying there, hiring a car, driving to the Gold Coast, staying down there, having a surgery, coming home. And it's exhausting and, again, like mentally it's a hard process to go to and it seems like forever, yes, because, you you know, you're looking for those two lines on your pregnancy test every month. So, it seems like a long time every time a negative comes up
1: over all those years. One of my best friends has had incredible fertility troubles. It's a different condition or diagnosis, I suppose, to you and Potter. Um but in similar in a way that it's the combination of the two people that don't just, yeah. but I something that we have spoken about a lot and I wonder how it's, how it played out with you as well Is it took you three years to get a diagnosis. But before you got that diagnosis, there was no certainty, no guarantee that you ever would, that you would find out if there was a reason. And if there was something that could be done to kind of circumvent it, you know, Get around it. So, how do you decide to, you know, when you're going to draw a line in the sand? I know with my best friend, like, you know, they'll, like you said, you do the um, simulation and they've got, you know, the embryos and implants and, okay, we're going to try these ones. And then if it doesn't take, then you know what? We've been doing this for, you know, five years or more. We're going to, that's it. And then it doesn't work. Oh no, we're just going to do one more. And it just keeps going on and on. And it's so hard. I've just got goosebumps thinking about it. Like it's such a painful process to be like, you know, I guess it's almost like a farmer in drought. Like, you know, maybe it'll rain tomorrow though. Like, yeah. and so how do you know, you know, do I sell all my cows today and then maybe it'll rain next week and I could have, how do you decide? All right. We're just going to keep trying. We're going to keep trying because then you may find yourself 15 years down the road still just trying and, and you wonder like, well, what if we just drawn a line in the sand and kind of tried to, you know, take a different path or move on or, you yeah. know, go down a different route, you know, perhaps adoption or foster, you know, whatever. Like, I just can't imagine how incredibly difficult yeah. trying to find that point is. I
2: think I I was struggling with that a lot because, you know, we, we did have lots of conversations about that and I think it was something that Potter was able to accept a little bit more than me. I, I couldn't really fathom not having kids, you know, I've always wanted kids, I've loved kids and... If it meant I had to adopt, I would, although I don't think that Potter was sort of in a a position where he would have been able to adopt. But, yes, we we had that conversation and um, it was hard. We we looked very closely at surrogacy and actually Hallie's embryo transfer was our last attempt before we were going to go down the surrogacy path. So we had a very generous um, and thoughtful friend who had offered to be our surrogate. At the time, though, there was no surrogacy legislation put in place in the Territory, and that has only just changed in the last couple of weeks. So that's fantastic to hear. But basically, we would have sort of had to move interstate to be able to go through that process, and that's where we were at. If this last embryo didn't work, we would have um, been going down that path. But, yeah, you you have to look at it at a financial app. financial aspect as well you know can we afford to keep doing this or do we need to make a you know have a break and and put money aside for it or do we stop altogether or you know we we did we exhausted all the options like i said surrogacy adoption foster care you know yeah can we financially afford it can we emotionally afford this um can we emotionally afford not to do this and to be honest i don't have the answer i don't know how you make that call Uh, I'm glad that we didn't have to. I'm glad we pushed through and
1: and we got our baby. But I, yeah, it's I don't know the answer to that one. (laughs) I suppose for everyone it would come at a different point. Perhaps someone else, you know, five implants before may have pulled up, and you know your threshold was you know you know five implants later, and you know just so lucky that you know like Hallie was was the last one and and it worked because if it hadn't, then I just can't imagine for for anyone going through this, you know. Yeah, having to decide, like, and then, and you know, then when you do make that call, then you're just going to be left with all these what ifs. What if we had just given it one more shot? You know, what if, um, especially now, like you said, the, the technology and the medicine is developing so fast, uh, but there's still so much, like so far to go. But, you know, what if, you know, the answer isn't here, but it's in 12 months and I can't, I can't imagine. Where were you and Potter when you got your diagnosis physically, I guess, and also, mentally?
2: Oh, to be honest, I actually can't remember because we've had so many um, Zoom meetings, phone consults, um, face-to-face appointments. And now like where we're at, it honestly all seems a blur to me. So, I think though, you know, when we got the diagnosis, so we were told we only had a 20% chance still then of being able to fall pregnant. And with the DQ alpha gene, you can either be a partial match or a full match, and the full match is the worst-case scenario. And, of course, we're a full match. Are
1: you Are going to do something? Do it
2: well. <laughs> yes. So I guess we were still sceptical. Yes, we'd been diagnosed with it, but like I said, we couldn't find very much information on it, and we still didn't know if it was going to work. So I guess we still – hadn't really got our hopes up, even though we were getting answers, yeah, we still weren't excited and happy that yes that's the problem now we'll just treat it because we didn't know um even then if the treatment would work and and we were kind of one of the first um I think who you know went through some of the the treatment as well, so um we didn't know how successful it would be, we didn't know if we'd be the lucky twenty percent and I guess since since being diagnosed, I started a support group on Facebook for the DQ-alpha gene in particular and it's great because now we've got about four or 500 members and we actually share a lot of information together and work it out together because, like I said, there's not that much info out there. But when we first started, you know, that like we couldn't find anything about it. So we were still fairly sceptical and I guess because we hadn't had any wins yet, we – yeah – we still weren't feeling very positive about it. But, you know, we were going to give it a go. We were, I guess, one step closer.
1: What was the protocol that you had to undertake? Now, so you have your diagnosis. It's not the most promising one, but at yeah. least there's some kind of action steps that they can take and now you can start an undergoing treatment to try and fall pregnant. What did that involve? So,
2: yeah, it's we it's called the like an immune protocol. We had to go on to try and suppress my immune system. So, Initially, what you start with is what they call limit treatment. And I'm not going to tell you what that is abbreviation for because it's this really big long word that's hard to pronounce. But you can Google it. L-M-I-T. And um you what they do is they take blood from your partner, from your husband, and they spin the blood and separate the red and white blood cells. Then they inject the white blood cells into the female. And then exactly four weeks later, you have that process done again, and that's the beginning of them suppressing your immune system. Then you undergo your embryo transfers, and if you happen to fall pregnant, then you are put on um, a series of medications to further um,
1: control your immune system from attacking the embryo. That sounds pretty full on. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I've seen from your Instagram a lot of posts with, you know, like syringes, needles, needles medications just can you run us i suppose through what you had to do on your end i mean aside from obviously what you've just said about having those uh infusions Mm -hmm. um yeah
2: so if you um fall pregnant then the protocol that i'm on and and it differs still um with the people with the same condition it slightly differs for every person but we are on Uh, Sorry, I'm on. Potter gets away scot-free on this. (laughs) (laughs) I undergo a fortnightly intralipid infusion. I also have to give daily clexane injections. Um, I take extra progesterone to help maintain the pregnancy. Um, I'm on aspirin and... Um, Also a steroid, so the one I'm on is a dexamethasone, which has lots of horrible (laughs) um, side effects. But, um, yeah, so they are daily medications that I have to take. And for this pregnancy, um, I have to take them up until
1: 26 weeks. And so with Hallie, you said that was the last implant that you had, but that was was after a diagnosis and under a protocol or under the treatment? Yes, so – I think she was
2: the third embryo that we transferred after having um, the limit treatment and we actually did a double transfer. So she was one of two embryos we had transferred and they both took but we um, miscarried one at seven weeks. So, yeah, she was a twin. So, But that was our last transfer. It was our last two embryos in the freezer at the time.
1: And um, yeah, lucky last. <laughs> so you're saying that you know the diagnosis was there was a 20% chance, and third slash fourth time trying, you managed to get into that 20%. Yeah, yeah. I- I'm guessing with the other two times where you had the implants, obviously you're taking a pregnancy test and getting a result. You must be very used to seeing. What about the time where you got a different result, one you hadn't seen before?
2: Well, they tell you not to take a home pregnancy test because the doctors want you to wait for the official blood result because you can have a faulty test. But I don't know anybody who does that <laughs> um, except for Potter because he keeps telling me, don't test, don't test. You you just wait for the doctor's result. But I always did sneaky home tests. I just never told him. <laughs> um So, I used to have to try and hide these pregnancy tests all the time in the rubbish bin. But, yeah, I remember with Hallie and I – so they call it the two week wait after you've had your embryo transfer, you have to wait two weeks before you can have the blood test to say whether it's worked or not. So I, um, I wanted to test, you know, in the first week or 10 days later or whatever, but I, I was, um, remain strong. And I think I didn't test until like the day before I had to have my official blood test anyway. And I thought, well, you know, I want to know regardless because when they ring me up and tell me the result it if it's good or bad, I want to be mentally prepared because I guess we'd had so many fails. I wanted to be mentally prepared before they rang me with that news anyway. So, so I did my little sneaky test at home and I, I think I must've done it just before bedtime. Cause I remember crawling into bed and I was just kind of, I was just so giddy. I was just like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Is this real? Like, is it quality? I don't know. Like, should I teleport it? Will we get cross that I tested? But I don't want him not to know. So I, um, yeah, I remember crawling into bed and I was like, "Um, so, Potter, I, I just did a pregnancy test and it's positive. And he's like, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, yep, yep, I'm pretty sure. Well, it could be faulty, so don't get excited. I'm like, yeah, well, it could be, but I'll do another one in the morning, hey, and we'll see. Well, why did you take it? I'm like, well, I wanted to know. <laughs> so he's like quizzing me, but he didn't really... He didn't want to get his hopes up, I think, because, you know, we've been hurt so many times before and so he he didn't want that false hope. So he was protecting his heart a bit, I suppose. So um, but once we got the call, you know, the next day from um, the nurse confirming it with the blood test, um, then it it was believable. But it actually got very stressful then because I guess we weren't prepared for it and we had to locate places to be able to get all the medications um, for that protocol and – that was very difficult trying to find somewhere that would administer my intralipid infusions in Darwin, which nowhere in Darwin would. Trying to find a chemist that even stocked half of these things, which most of them didn't. So we actually ended up getting them sent from Adelaide and Melbourne. But meanwhile, I'm stressing out that if I don't get this medication ASAP, I'm going to lose the baby. So I was in tears and potters on the phone yelling at people to say, hurry up and get the medications here. And it was very stressful week trying to organize it all. So, we kind of, I guess, didn't get to enjoy it straight away because we were just so worried. We knew we weren't out of the woodwork, I suppose. We knew there was so much more now um, still to try and keep this baby on board. And so, a whole new level of stress started.
1: (laughs) Is there a point during the pregnancy where, I guess, like you've got, I mean, nothing's guaranteed, but some kind of security that the pregnancy will will remain or is it something that you have to kind of keep this protocol up every day until you deliver or risk losing the baby? Like is there a, is there a point where you can kind of breathe out and, and relax? I
2: think, well, with any pregnancy there's a risk the whole way through. Um, I don't think that's any different for us. You – no, I don't think you relax until you're holding them in your arm. <laughs> you, you know, because you're still potentially even if you have the immune – um protocol under control is nothing to say that it maybe there's something else wrong with the baby that you don't know about either. But uh and um I guess going through so much failure you you just guard your heart the whole time and you don't yeah, you
1: you don't relax. You don't relax until they're in your arms, that's for sure. It must be hard to you know, something you've waited so long for, like the ultimate, ultimate example of delayed gratification um, but you can't really like truly 100% enjoy it because there's just that that chance and it's
2: hard because you know being your first baby you want to get excited you want to decorate the nursery and you want to buy clothes and um, you know all the cute little things that first-time mums do but um, but I I think all mums go through that you know they they probably don't relax even if if they're able to conceive naturally and easily and and carry their babies easily they probably stress the whole time as well, but yeah, I don't know. it's it's very hard to relax, I suppose, because you're like like I said, you're always guarding your heart.
1: Now, you just mentioned that, um so to receive the protocol, the treatments that you needed to basically give you the best chance of maintaining that pregnancy, there are a number of things you had to do, like medications and transfusions, and you mentioned Dar- in Darwin, they weren't able to give you the transfusions. I just want to. Touch base for perhaps any international listeners that aren't familiar with the geography of Australia. So, the Northern Territory is like the top middle half, sort of in the middle though. Uh, and Darwin is the capital city. So, it's not a country – relative to, say, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, it is a lot smaller, but it's still a, a, a international port, an international airport. It's the capital city. There's plenty of services up there. They weren't able to do that transfusion for you though. That really – I can't reconcile that in my mind that something that can't be done in a place like that.
2: It was so frustrating, you know, because by the time we found out we're pregnant, it's 2020, you know, um, people have to be up with, you know, everything that's new and keep up to date with all the new developments and science. And, you know, that's how we progress in the world. And um, I spoke to three hospitals. You know, Darwin is large enough to have three different hospitals. They have um, infusion clinics. They have cancer clinics. They have um, day surgeries. And I tried all of them. I tried private doctors, um, GPs, e- everything, and nowhere would or could apparently um, – be able to administer these infusions for me and like i said i was literally in tears i remember the, the third hospital i was begging this lady i was talking to and in tears and i i was just at my wits end. i just didn't know what to do or where to go and i was prepared to fly to the gold coast every fortnight if i had to to get these infusions and god imagine the cost in that involved but It was just, you know, you would do anything, you know, for your child. So if that's what we had to do, that's what we were going to have to do. And like I said earlier, we live in a place called Timber Creek, which is just a small Aboriginal community and they have a little clinic there. And I was fortunate enough that they had a visiting doctor there at the time and she made a few phone calls and spoke to an obstetrician at the maternity ward in Catherine. And they were like, yes, well, if you can send us the instructions and, you know, a referral from your doctor, we'll administer it for you. So even though our capital city wouldn't do it, Catherine started me off on it, which is, you know, a small sort of smaller obviously centre than Darwin. And then once our small community clinic was comfortable with what I was going through, they then actually took over and continued my infusion. So I don't really understand how come I can have my infusions in a small Aboriginal community clinic but not our capital city.
1: For context, so you're saying Darwin is three hospitals um, and God knows how much of everything else. Like I don't know, I'm not up to date with the latest population but there's a fair mob of people there. Catherine, again, I don't really have the population stats but... For context, it's got one Woolworths and, like, that's it. So, it's not even, like, you know, one of those towns, like, Brune has a Woolworths and a Coles and a couple of IGAs. It's It's just just got one 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 Woolies and it used to be a country target and now it's a Kmart hub, like, not even a real Kmart. It's, like, a half or a quarter of a Kmart. Like, that's the size of the town and they were able to do that for you and Darwin wasn't.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the frustrating part is that, yeah, like, you know, and I guess it all stems back to, you know, we, we were so disappointed with Darwin at the beginning because their fertility specialists couldn't help us and now their hospitals couldn't administer this infusion for me. And um, yeah, it's just a
1: lot of frustration. And you yeah, know, I guess you don't know who to take it out on. And meanwhile, this is all going down in 2020. So you'd yeah global pandemic like what yes. a time to be alive what a time to need to be <laughs> able to travel interstate yeah, or you know with lockdowns you're immune you're taking you're on an immune protocol yeah. uh so protecting your immune system is like literally paramount it is the only priority and we're in a global pandemic where Oh God! Like when it yeah. rains, it pours. Like, could yeah. you have any more challenges thrown in no. your face? That's it. And Potter, he was excellent, actually, because we had all our
2: staff turning up. Because we found out I was pregnant at a, a very beginning of March. That's like the start of our season. We had all our all our stock camps turning up, and you know we, we employed 21, 22 people throughout those three camps. And um, I remember Potter was getting up and he's like, okay, well, you're not allowed to go out there and you're not allowed to meet them. You have to stay in the house. And I was cooking for them all while they were, you know, getting all the gear ready before they headed out bush. And I said, well, Potter, you know, they're coming over for meals to the house. And he goes, yes, well, you 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 put the meals outside on the table and then you can sit back inside and – you're not coming near anybody. You can anybody. watch us eat through the window. Yeah. So I was allowed to sit at the sliding glass door with my mask on and talk to them all while I had dinner, but I wasn't allowed to eat dinner with them. And, um, I know like every time if, if Potter drove my car down to the roadhouse or the store to pick something up, he would have, he'd get all the hand wipes out and sanitize my steering wheel and the door handle. And he's like, you're not allowed to leave the house. I'll go downtown. So he was very good. He's very protective and, and went to all the necessary measures. But yeah, it was, um, yeah, because I didn't have an immune system.
1: He was very protective
2: of that. And
1: oh, my gosh. That's, yeah,
2: another that's hurdle. the sweetest thing,
1: though. Like, bless him. Just I like, can imagine him sitting there like wiping down yeah. the steering wheel. Yeah. Like, wouldn't you just steal another car? <laughs> <laughs> While you're going through this journey, for many people, infertility is a very private um, – I don't know if you'd even say taboo, but sort of, you know, it's a very private – process yeah Mm -hmm. and that not many people want to speak about It's it's starting to change but even then and and i guess and and people can choose to share and not share if they want like but you have just been documenting it on instagram and you have an account dedicated to it um under like barren old barren old cow yeah barren old cow (laughs) with some underscores in there well uh, if you guys search it it'll come up though yeah which i was like oh rainy you're not a barren old cow like (laughs) (laughs) because you know like we've said it's it's not you and it's not Potter (laughs) it's just this little combination here um but what you know when did you first start that and what was the thought behind it because again like I was saying for so many people it's so private and like you said earlier a lot of women take on the the onus of you know I've done something wrong or I'm not able to you know do my part here um and so that you know they definitely even then wouldn't want to speak about it even more
2: yeah, and, and initially that was us. You know, we, we were very private about it. Um, I, I wouldn't say we were ashamed about it. I think we just didn't want the pity or the sympathy vote sort of thing. We didn't want to feel like, yeah, we expected people to feel sorry for us. Um, I guess it, it wasn't, yeah, that, that we felt ashamed that we were having a problem or anything. Um, and I guess so by, 2020. Um, I started the Instagram page at the beginning of 2020. Only not for long, I guess. Before I ended up falling pregnant with Hallie. But I think my main reason for it was um, we'd just gotten to a point in our journey where we had nothing left to lose. You know, we weren't gaining ground, or we kind of felt like we weren't, I suppose. And but we had nothing left to lose. And if um, if someone else could gain anything from our story, then then that was a win, I suppose. But um, I think also I I realised there was a lack of support networks out there for rural women in particular. Um, I searched Instagram and I searched Facebook to find like a rural infertility network that I could relate to because like I, I'm a member of quite a few different um, support groups on Facebook but it, Honestly, doing it remotely is a totally different kettle of fish because, you know, like the women on the support groups that I'm with are, you know, from Sydney or Melbourne and so they're like, oh, yeah, we're just ducking in for our appointment tomorrow to see our specialist and then the next day we'll do this, next day we'll do that. Um, we don't have that luxury. And it takes months of planning and scheduling and travel arrangements and extra costs. And I think I I had spoken to one of the ladies on the pages and they couldn't believe like the distances that we traveled and the lengths we went to to be able to attend our appointments. And I guess you don't realize because you're so used to living in the bush, you don't think about it. But then speaking to someone who doesn't have to go through that was a bit of a wake-up call. And you're like, well, yeah, I suppose it is a bit more harder, you know, for us. So, I actively went out searching for other groups um, for real women dealing with infertility and just so I had someone to relate to. And and even from a work aspect, you know, maybe we want to talk about missing out on going out in the cattle yards or, or whatever. And I just couldn't find anything. And um, so, I thought, well, I'll, I might start something up. And I think originally I wanted to remain anonymous, um, hence why I went, you know, barren old cow because I already had it, you know, I've got a personal um, Instagram page already. But I thought, no, I I don't want to tell people who I am. I'll, I'll just remain anonymous. But I think that only lasted a couple of weeks and then I let the cat out of the bag anyway because I, I guess then I decided I wanted to be more approachable to people and um, – and, yeah, it's just easier, I think, in the long run. So, um, but it's been amazing. It's actually provided me with a lot of support. I do try and share the process and our story and as much information as I have learned and we continue to learn, I do try and share that with other women because, like I said, you know, it takes three, four years for us to get an um, answer on, on what the problem was. Um, but if we can shorten up somebody else's journey in, and save them, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that we've already spent, or, or maybe we save them three years' time. Then it's, you know, all being worthwhile. So, you know, I, I discussed it with Potter, and I said, you know, do you mind if I sort of share our story and, and just start this page? And he, he was very supportive of the idea. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I hope, I hope it's provided education for other women out there.
1: Have you come across or been had many people reach out to you that have gone through similar struggles?
2: Yes, yes. So um, I found on my page I have a wide variety. You know, I, I might just have rural women who are interested in learning more. Maybe they don't have any difficulties, but they're actually you know learning um, about the struggles that others are going through. Um, maybe that makes them a more supportive person towards their friends. Um, I've also got you know followers that do live in the in the city. And they're amazed because we do it, you know, differently and the, of, the different, um, of the different, you know, travel arrangements or the different medical facilities that we have available. And, yes, I guess mainly educating. And, and a lot of actually younger girls that are starting to think about their future in advance, which I strongly encourage. You know, they're not ready to start a family yet, but they want to make sure that when they are that they're not, having to struggle for three years or four years like we did so um, you know they might say what should I get tested and when should I get this done and now oh, these were my results but where do we go from here and and some people just need the support they might send you a private message and say you know well we've gone through this and how did you cope with that and um, or maybe someone says you know I don't know what dose of this medication I should be taking or or I've run out what do I do so it's such a wide variety of Um, different people and stories and situations have come through that page but I love every single one of them and um, yeah I don't know I get great enjoyment out of it I guess because I feel like I'm providing a support network but I'm getting one in return.
1: (laughs) I think what you just said about you know you see you're you're providing support to other people and and receiving a return but to have the people that are perhaps not even ready to start a family, that aspect of education, I suppose, and raising awareness of, like you said, just getting tested or understanding your fertility, and what you can be tested for before you even start trying, just so you don't get three years in before you, you know, on the off chance something's happened. Although to be honest, I, I couldn't tell you how many of my friends have infertility problems. Like it's so common these days. It mm. is such a big thing. It reminds me of an episode we put out last year with Jessie Evans from Napier Down Station uh, in the West Kimberley who after I think her baby was three weeks old when he was diagnosed with SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, and it turns out that's something that if the mum and the dad, they're both recessive carriers, have it, then – um, but it's actually something you can get tested for beforehand, both people. But mm. nobody, we're not told about right. it. So it's all education. So they could have um, been tested, you know, beforehand. Been, or even say one person get tested. know, okay. Well, we've got a chance, and then you can monitor. You can start testing for it. You know, I don't know how early on in you know, after a pregnancy takes. But in our culture, society, whatever you want to call it, at school, all the education is focused on how not to get pregnant. Yeah. Everything is so centred around, um, you know, safe sex and don't get pregnant and if this happens, like, do this. And, I mean, but, the, yeah, all the education is about how not to get pregnant and there's just no focus on – and even though, I mean, I don't know about you and with your health insurance, but I know with my provider, like, you have to change to include pregnancy 12 months before you, like, yeah. start trying something because if you just got pregnant, like, you can't just add it. I'm like, no. that is such a – shitty loophole. It like, is because you
2: don't know. Sometimes, you know, if you have a spontaneous pregnancy, well, you yeah, don't know. Um, you know, and also
1: yeah. what if somebody gets pregnant not by choice? You yeah, know, like that's let's right. – I'm just – that's the weirdest policy anyway. Well, that can be a discussion for another day. <laughs> but, yeah, what would you recommend for any woman, any age, you know, anyone listening to, to adult adult, um, that is, you know, plans on having children at some point in time? Like what kind of things should we be looking for and getting tested for?
2: I think um, firstly you get your egg levels tested and it is a simple blood test and I'll just tell you what your egg reserve at is if it's low or if it's normal. If it is low, then your GP will probably suggest that you freeze some eggs um, because if further down the track you meet your partner or you decide to start a family later on, then you have that option um, because as you get older that level drops. But you know, all women are different and the, and their egg level may be low from teenage years. I think you can also, it, I guess it depends on how far you want to take the testing, but some of it is um, you can get like an internal scan done to make sure that your ovaries, your uterus, um, and your tubes are all normal, look normal, um, not blocked, all of that sort of thing. So just like a physical exam I suppose and and that's for the boys as well you know they can do that um, and they can have a test done of their sperm sample um, and just test um, the motility and mobility of their sperm as well so you know if if the blokes are keen uh, encourage that as well to to get them test to get that tested um, also endometriosis is a huge thing we have been told for years that period pain is normal Period pain is not normal. It is a symptom of endometriosis, but you also don't have to have – you can have silent endometriosis with no symptoms, um, and that will affect your fertility as well. So the only way to tell, unfortunately, is with keyhole surgery, which obviously is invasive. And um, But, you know, I think if you have begun trying and you're having issues – then it's definitely one of the first things I would get investigated because it's very common, um, and very misdiagnosed by GPs and, and probably even IVF specialists, depending on uh, which doctor you have. But, um, yeah, so they're definitely the recommendations that I would give to, um, just people at the very beginning of the journey.
1: It's a, um, it's a narrative we really need to change. And I suppose that's what your page is doing as well is that shifting it from, Okay. All you got to do is, you know, have safe sex, you know, get tested, firsty whatever, you know, and don't get pregnant, you know, like that's <laughs> just, it's as simple as that. And then when you want to get pregnant, you, you know, just, you know, with your partner, just, you know, take away the condom and you'll be fine, you know, and happily ever after. Yeah. But there's just so much more involved uh, to it. Absolutely.
2: And-, and, and I think you're right. Like, I think it does stem from like sex ed. Um, when we're younger, like, uh, like you said, we, we're taught how to not get pregnant. And there's, we're never given um, a discussion about infertility and maybe getting this testing done. It's all get the pill or what what contraceptive mef- methods there are. It's not, um, you know, you should get tested for this if you ever want to have a family or, or whatever. So I think ideally I would love to see it
1: discussed more in sex ed classes for sure. And I can also imagine there would be people out there being like, Oh no! Like we'll just give it a go, and then you know maybe if we're having some trouble, then we'll start getting some tests done. But I just think like, what's the harm in being prepared? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I
2: I know it all costs money, but you know at the end of the day, we need to look after our health, and it's part of our health. So, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, and it's simple. Like I said, you know, you know, period pain is not normal. How many women do you know struggle with period pain every month? But um, you know, our specialist has said there's there's no such thing. You should not have
1: period pain. If you do, it is a if, deeper issue. Really? Yeah. Like any at all? Yeah. Okay. I used to have to go to hospital like a couple of times a year with period pain. Yeah. Like, well, there you
2: go. This, yeah. And this is only something I've only learned in the last twelve months. But I thought that was amazing. And um, but yeah, what an eye opener. I just think
1: it's, it's been so normalised, probably by male doctors. Who knows? Just like I don't know. Yeah. That's a whole other topic as well. Yeah, i you know, Yeah. I'm like, don't tell me like about it until you've experienced it. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so we all know how like the man flu affects you? <laughs> yeah. Um, how old is Hallie now? She's almost
2: um, coming up to 19 months now.
1: And you are pregnant with baby number two. Yeah. Which please explain to me because my mind is blown, natural conception. <laughs>
2: this is a natural conception and our mind is blown too because everyone was like, oh, you know, after you have your first one through IVF, you might fall pregnant actually. And I'm like, no, it won't happen with us, impossible. We might not ever be able to have another baby for us. And um, I actually went, to, I'd flown down to Queensland and did another um, egg collection and um, – we created more embryos to put in the freezer to start trying again. Um, And yeah, only a few weeks after I'd had my egg collection surgery, I had fallen pregnant naturally. And um Yeah, it's a huge shock. Potter and I, uh, we're still in disbelief that this has happened, but I am on the immune protocol to maintain the pregnancy, even though it was conceived naturally. To maintain it, I still have to go um, through that process again. So I've had the limit treatment and I'm on all the medications, which have actually extended, I think last time I was on them, to 14 weeks and this time I'm um, four times the doses and I'm extended to 26 weeks. So I'm really feeling the side effects of that. I'm not enjoying this pregnancy as much as with Hallie. Um, just because of the side effects of especially the steroids. But, you know, it's all for a good reason and we'll get there eventually. It's just taking a long time. And the reason they've done that is um, just new, new research, again, has indicated that it will help minimise our risk of a second trimester loss. So, you know, if we can reduce any risks, I'm all for it. So that's that's the reasoning behind being on the protocol on a higher dose and for a longer period of time. But, um, yeah, so we're pretty gobsmacked that this is where we are, but we're so bloody excited.
1: <laughs> because both your children have come at the, as a result of such an incredibly long um, physically, emotionally, mentally, financially, like, gruelling journey, do you feel any pressure to... I guess, wrap them up in cotton wool or, you know, try to just, I don't know, meet all their needs or, you know, that they need to turn out to be prime minister rather than say, <laughs> I don't know, like a taxi driver. Not, I know, that's, yeah. you know, but you know what I mean, you know, do you feel these pressures that, you know, we've put so much into getting you here and do you have, I guess, the pressure of, of how you just in general care for them and, and keep them safe now, their earth side, but also then what they go on to do in life?
2: I think um, I'm a lot more casual and blase about it probably. Um, No, I don't personally feel the pressure. I um, want to raise children, you know, um, who are very capable and independent and I love the fact that we can raise kids in our environment, like our lifestyle around cattle, horses, living in the bush. You know, they tend to grow up with so much common sense. Hallie. Like I said, she's not even 19 months. She already fills the nose bags for the horses. She takes her own rubbish bag out to the wheelie bin um, every couple of days. Um, you know, she's already working for her keep, I suppose. <laughs> um, and I love that. Um, I love that with, you know, a parenting to get that result, I suppose, that <laughs> makes me feel happy. Um, I think Potter is very protective of her. Um, and, you know, would hate to see her trip over and graze her knee, but I don't know. That might be just the bloke thing with having a daughter. He's, he's actually a really good girl dad, which we didn't expect, but, um, he, yeah, he loves having a daughter and he dotes on her so much and there's nothing he wouldn't do for her. Um, so I feel like my parenting is probably a little bit more relaxed than his, but that's just
1: because he's just obsessed with her. He loves her so much. So, so when you see Hallie out on the playground, you know, perhaps about to fall off the swing, you just see, A little girl out in the playground, not, you know, say (laughs) $200,000, you know, kind of like, well, I wonder that with some people that buy horses at that cost, (laughs) like, and then they don't let them go out. You know, there are some people that have such expensive animals that they keep them like penned up all the time because like, well, if they got in the paddock, they might I don't know, kick another horse and get a cut or break their leg, you know, and so – but so it's yeah. amazing that you I can – I think it doesn't – it's yeah. not that
2: it doesn't cross your mind. It certainly mm. probably does now and then, but um, it's not something that – um, no,
1: I don't treat her any differently. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I can't even begin to thank you for being so candid and, like, generous with your time, but so candid with some very personal questions yeah. and lines of thought. Uh, to finish up, I'd like to ask you the question I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. And now, now I'm, on, like, the yeah, oh, like, oh. Now I'm on the spot. Yeah. I'm having foot on the spot. Well, normally I ask looking back at your life so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? But I suppose we can also just kind of meld that to, you know, looking back at this whole experience, what would you say is, is the major lesson that you've learned?
2: I, I often reflect on this and think to myself, why did we Why did we try to fit all our appointments in with work? Why didn't we do it the other way around? Why did we waste so much time thinking, oh, we'll just do that in three months' time when mustering's not so busy? And I know, you know, you've got to do the mustering to make the money to pay for the IVF. But when I look back, I always think, why don't we just do it? Why don't we just book the appointment, see the doctor when we wanted so we could get through this quicker? But I mean, I don't feel like we've lost time or anything, but I just think, yeah, don't don't wait for the answer to come to you, I suppose. You need to definitely go out there and source it and, and take things into your own hands. Don't, you know, definitely if you think you need a second opinion, don't doubt yourself and go for it. And if you need to see another doctor or in, in any aspect of, of your health, I suppose, then do it. It's worth it. <laughs>